Dr. Imran Mahmood studied medicine at Oxford before studying public health at Harvard on a Fulbright scholarship. He then ranked first in the country and entered the ophthalmology training program, which he then promptly left, joining McKinsey. In 2018, he co-founded Nye Health, raising over four million pounds. He now sits as a startup advisor, angel investor, and consultant on digital health topics. We speak about leaving medicine and if the grass is really greener on the other side. We speak about networking, effective decision-making, and lots, lots more. Imran is a very insightful and interesting speaker. I hope you enjoy the episode. I just had this like strange realization one day that had been building for a long time when I was in my A&E rotation that like, you know, you once in a blue moon, you clear the A&E waiting room at like one in the morning. And then if you come back in the next morning, like it's full again. And it just has like something so inevitable about that. And so I had this like itch to understand like who's trying to go upstream, who's trying to solve that problem. And then gradually that evolved into learning about um, products, about services, and more interest in technology. And actually, uh, after my F2, I took a gap year and I did a public health degree. So I went to Boston for a year, I had a really good time. And, and the stuff that really caught my interest in Boston was what was happening at the intersection of the medical school and the business school. And there were startups that were actually being created by students, uh, some of them MBA students who were doctors, um, others on my course. A few of those companies have actually done very well now, uh, seven to eight years down the line, but this was happening. And I sort of saw in that path, I saw something very exciting. And I started looking at technology, at businesses. And um, when I came back to the UK, uh, although I entered initially into an ST1 ophthalmology because I had I'd already been accepted, I had this thought in my mind, I was sort of thinking, you know, how do I get my hands dirty in business, in technology, in creating companies and whatnot? So after about six to nine months of my SD1, I actually resigned. That's a longer story. We can dig into that if, if you like. But I actually handed in my um, number and I joined a consulting company called McKinsey. And the main reason I joined McKinsey was that more than any other company that I was aware of at the time, McKinsey told this great story about like transformation. Uh, so you kind of come as a doctor, you come as a scientist, you come as a lawyer, and then they really develop you. They develop you in, you know, your intellectual skills. They teach you about, um, you know, what it's actually like to solve business problems. You meet lots of clients, you're solving problems in different geographies, different domains. And I was really hooked on that. And I think at the heart of it, I was just really hungry to learn. So I joined McKinsey, spent three years at McKinsey, um, 2015 to 2018. 2018, I left McKinsey and I co-founded a telemedicine uh, digital health company. And that was with the guy that I actually, remember I said at medical school, I got involved in a project in Somaliland and the Middle East. The guy who founded that organization, it was the same person, a good friend of mine, very dear friend, uh, Alexander Finlayson. And we co-founded Nye Health together. So it was the beginning of 2018, and essentially the last three and a half years, more or less, I've been working at Nye, um, helping grow the company, helping with the products, helping with the fundraising. As a co-founder, you just do a bit of everything. <laughs> uh, so that was my role. And about two months ago, I left Nye. So that's uh, that's a kind of story, a, a sort of na um, you know narrative uh, summary of of like essentially what I've been up to since medical school until today. And just now I'm doing a mixture of things. So I'm working with a few startups and some pharma companies on contract work. So I'm kind of helping big companies learn how to work with startups and helping startups understand the problems that big companies face. 
and uh, just working with a bunch of other startups where I'm not contracting with them, but just supporting them or in some cases making angel investments. I want to ask a little bit about McKinsey because I've heard two varying things. The first thing is a kind of positive account where you get compensated really well. You're around loads of intelligent people. You build this amazing network. And the second thing I've heard is that it's kind of death by PowerPoint. You're doing a lot of meaningless work for clients, staying up late, et cetera, et cetera. Where does your experience sit in that? It's all of the, it's honestly like all of the above and more. Um, so my, you do, okay, let's get the like um, bad stuff out of the way first. You work really hard when you're working, but you do have time, you do have downtime. They call it being on the beach. And when you're on the beach, it's basically you're in between projects. So things are pretty chilled. But when you're working, you're working really hard. Having said that, in three and a bit year, three years or so, I never did an all-nighter. I think I did one all-nighter. And I virtually never worked on the weekend, apart from maybe one or two days. Um, so that's, you know, it's a trade-off. So you work hard Monday to Thursday, sometimes on Friday, and then you have your downtime. Um, some of that work is travel. So there were times where I'd wake up at four in the morning, catch a 7 a.m. flight to Chicago, land at like 10 or 11 a.m. local time, work until 11 p.m. local time, by which time it's like some, you know, ungodly hour in the morning on my body clock, um, and then fly back on a Thursday, sleep overnight in the plane, you know, turn up in London at 10 a.m. and have to do a full working day. So I did like those types of stints, which are just in hindsight, just crazy. Um, but, you know, from a compensation point of view, I would say that like, don't go to McKinsey for the money because I think it will, it's hard work. And in order to succeed there, if you're just motivated by the money, then first of all, you probably could get paid a lot more in other companies. McKinsey has this kind of like, the way I look at it is they have this sort of, um, I think they have this like sense that they don't have to pay top of the market because they've got a strong brand name. Uh, and obviously like what's happening in other domains like technology and invest, investing and so on is on a different level. Um, but the key thing I would say in all of that is, well, two things. The first are the learning. So the, all of that hard work, it leads to something, right? You're like sharpening your sword as you're doing the work. You're making slides. And slides is, you know, a bit of a joke. Like you can, you know, we can, we can uh, poke fun at people that just make slides. But um, there's something in the art of communication in businesses. And that's really what you're learning. And you're also learning about like ownership delivering stuff to a really high standard, um, getting your stuff done on time, delivering complicated work, simplifying complex ideas. And the other part of it that you do a lot of is obviously in Excel, you're doing quantitative analysis, you might be doing some modeling. So you're learning, you're sort of in the kiln, in the furnace, and you're sort of learning uh, in the process of doing the hard work. And the second thing is the people, as you mentioned. Yeah, McKinsey is like full of very motivated, very talented people. You know, people used to joke and say, you know, like hyper anxious uh, overachievers that are constantly needing some kind of validation. It's a bit of a joke, but people there are like, there's a lot of very smart people. When you're working alongside people like that, the tempo, intellectual tempo, and the kind of horsepower in those teams is extremely high. You form bonds with people as a result. You build some great friendships. You learn from people. Um, many, in my case, many of those friendships have continued since leaving the firm. So yeah, it was a real thrill. It's, it's, it's kind of addictive in the way that doing anything at a high level feels like, you know, an always on type of mindset. It kind of gets a bit addictive. And the other thing was throughout your story on, you know, on a, on a very uh, high level, if you look at Oxford, uh, Fulbright Scholarship, uh, McKinsey, et cetera, et cetera, you've managed to get into very, very good places a lots of time, multiple times. 
Is there any particular formula you have or anything that you think you, you uniquely do that helps you get into these opportunities? It's a, it's a really, it's a great question. Like I do recognize that I've been very blessed in that regard. I think it's a combination of um, being around people. In most cases, those things that I was able to have those opportunities to do, in virtually all cases, I had a friend or a mentor or somebody I just looked up to who had done that before me. So at Oxford, there were a couple of students in years above me at school I really looked up to that got into Oxford or Cambridge. Um, with McKinsey, there were classmates of mine in Boston that got into McKinsey. Uh, with the Fulbright Scholarship, I lived in the year that I got the award in a flat with a guy called Adam Ali, who had a similar but different scholarship the year before or two years before. In fact, Alexander, my co-founder, got a I think a Kennedy or a Knox scholarship to Harvard uh, about three to five years before I applied. So the so people around me, I think their experiences and their um, ambition and horizons, like being able to see those opportunities, that was critical. Like, I, you know, absolutely. Like in many cases, those people I mentioned actually wrote my um, personal statements with me or they wrote references for me or they like guided me through the process. So I think I was just extraordinarily lucky um, there's another part of that, of course, which is like, you know, you ultimately have to put the work in, whether it's interview preparation or it's, you know, McKinsey has an entrance exam and so on. So with those things, you know, I think I do have a sort of um, tendency to get like, you know, really uh, goal orientated at times. I kind of think of, you can think of them like sprints, like if there's something I'm working towards uh, over a three to six month period, you know, I'll be really focused on that. and you know, just, just work hard, frankly, I do my best to work hard. It's difficult. You know, there's lots of distractions and so on, but it's for a combination of those things. So having people around, um, you know, getting their advice, getting their support, getting their training, and then following whatever it is that they've helped me to see that I need to do, putting the work in. And then there's like a huge dose of luck as well. I don't want to like discount that. I'm sure absolutely there is. Could you tell me a little bit more about your startup journey and and co-founding Nye Health and and how that went? One of the one of the best things about that process was starting the company with an old friend, because I now see, having seen like hundreds of companies, maybe more, one of the greatest challenges is like finding good co-founders. Uh, when I say good, I mean a good fit. Uh, I'm not saying some people are just bad. <laughs> I mean co-founders that are a good fit. And I was very fortunate to have um, in co-founders folks that like I really trusted that I knew like who they were. I'd seen them for a long period of time. And that just took a lot of the anxiety out of it, right? It's like doing something with your friends. In terms of the actual business, we were doing telemedicine with the intent of building for the NHS first. That's why we called the company Nye, because the and the politician who made, brought the NHS into being was actually called Nye Bevan. He was a Welsh minister. And we wanted to build telemedicine for the NHS. And actually, in the first instance, we got a lot wrong. So although we were able to raise money reasonably easily, and in the, in the first funding round, a lot of that was actually from NHS people. So it was from GPs and partners, uh, an NHS institution, and then a few angels um non-medical angels essentially although we were able to do that one thing we really struggled with was like to get traction and i think that's normal actually i think a lot of people start somewhere the first thing they put out there is like not quite the right thing 
So we iterated through many, many different products. Eventually we found something that really worked. And the great learning there is that the thing that worked was like the simplest thing that we had ever built. It was like, it was like a 10% core out of the 100% of what we had conceived and built. And the 10% is the thing that stuck. And through the pandemic, essentially when it sort of kicked off in the UK in March, 2020, things really picked up pace for us. So we had, you know, we were growing like 10 to 15% every week um, for like 60 consecutive weeks. So the company was like doubling in something like every five to six weeks in its user base and its product usage in its reach. Um, so that was a really hectic time. And when you're building something that's growing that fast, literally exponentially, everything sort of breaks and falls apart or becomes like not fit for purpose anymore at some point. And those intervals can happen quite close together. So you fix something, all of a sudden it breaks again because you're now like five times bigger than when you fixed it before you, before you realize it. So that was a really whirlwind time. And the, when things sort of stabilized, what we, the long and short of it is that we actually pivoted out of uh, working with primary care and more working in the research space for a variety of reasons, partly what the competitors were doing, partly the challenges commercializing products in the NHS, which is a real challenge. A few companies have really cracked it well, but many companies struggle with it. Um, so when we moved into the research space, we were working with clinical trials and we were providing a whole bunch of solutions that enable you to do a clinical, participate in a clinical trial from home. Um, and that's what the company's still doing at the moment. So that was a lot of fun. About two months ago, I stepped back from the company uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, principally I am now, I'm sort of taking some downtime and um, working on a few small projects, as I mentioned before, but also kind of exploring a few different ideas to start a company, another company, because I think one thing that happens, it's almost like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like being a first time parent where like everything, you make so many mistakes, you're like probably more anxious than you need to be about everything. But then once you've done it the first time, um, you kind of want to see like, can you do a better job the second time or what can you, can you apply those learnings? Can you take them back into the field? Um, so that's something that I'm really excited about now and yeah, that that was. Uh, there's so much more to say about that. Like a lot of ups and downs, uh, a lot of pressure at different times, um, raising funding, which is like never a peaceful process. It's always like kind of it's like a negotiation, it's like process management, relationship management. There's a lot of like technical stuff, and if you get it right, you raise the money, and like you raise the money you expected. So nobody really thinks that you over delivered. But if you make a mistake, there's like so many ways it can go wrong and the whole thing can fall apart. So it's like one of those things that there's a lot more ways to like crash and burn <laughs> than there are to to get things right. So um, yeah, not for the faint hearted. I know you've uh, spoken about this a, a lot before. Um, and I was wondering if we could tailor this advice to say a medic who is either in entrepreneurship, in research, in policy or whatever, yeah. um, who is attempting to network their way up in their career potentially um so essentially the, the question is do you have any advice on networking on networking we, exactly but with a particular slant for those more junior people who are kind of shooting up rather than someone who's shooting level <laughs> or below if that makes sense yeah and is this is this some um, sort of networking into the world of like technology and entrepreneurship specifically or is this more like in a general sense um take it how you want um i would be particularly interested in relationship management, forming new relationships, maintaining yeah. them, carrying them on, that kind of thing as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
there's a few things here that come to mind. I'm going to say some stuff that might feel a bit disjointed and random, um, but we'll piece it together as we go. The first thing is that if you want to be interesting, do interesting things, right? And what I mean by that is when you're net networking, networking is kind of a strange word because it's like, if it sounds kind of political um, and the culture I try to embody or like propagate in my digital interactions, which is, this is a great example, is like more like win and help win type culture, right? And the thing about like political politics is a zero sum game. So networking sometimes gives people a bit of a, it like activates some antibodies around like people that are a bit hacky or like, you know, motivated by self-interest in order to like, you know, I think political is the right word. It probably conveys the sense of what I'm getting at. Whereas um, I think the way I like to think of it is about just making friends, right? So I don't think that we're networking. I don't think that you're shooting up or shooting down. Uh, but I think that we're becoming friends. I think that we're like chatting, we're getting to know each other. You're helping me because this is cheaper than therapy. Uh, I'm helping you because, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to to to, to be on, on the pod and so on. So I think about it like that. So I think maybe what I'm getting at there is about people's mindsets. So the first thing I would say is like, um, just do interesting things that you are interested in. And that starts to form the core of your basis for connecting with people. So the reason that we are connecting, it's not some like empty conversation. Musty, you are uh, a podcaster. You've got a great track record of like very consistent, high quality content behind you. You're carving out a niche for yourself. You're building an audience around your ideas. You're someone who's like, you know, presenting yourself on the internet through your personal website and so on, your artifacts of stuff you've done in the past, your passions and so on. So all of that is like, it builds trust and it starts to tell a story about who you are and what you're interested in. So you just reached out to me cold, right? Like that was um, an example, I think. And just to take that example, when I see that and I see what you're doing, see what you're about, for me, it, it just hits different to like, hey man, uh, can I, can I, can I call you? Can we talk about like changing careers? And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? Like, you know, what are your questions? And, you know, so it's just different type of conversation, but when you reached out to me, it was totally different. So I think that's one really important thing is that people, you know, putting in the work and creating a kind of center of gravity around your interests and what you stand for when you're interacting with people and how you can help them and what you're looking to learn. That's so important. The second thing I'll, and I think, yeah, in that is the whole point about like, you know, being, to be interesting, be interested in things, do interesting things. That's how you sort of build that. Um, the thing about like making friends versus networking, the mindset, what's at the heart of that is like, you know, when we are children, uh, most people like in their relationship with their parents, there's a very clear hierarchy. And that hierarchy sears itself on our psyches as, you know, you as a child are not quite on the same pedestal or level as your teachers, as your parents, as your seniors. Like nobody asks you, hey, what should we cook for dinner tomorrow? Where should we go on holiday? What do you think about this thing in the news? Like those are maybe silly examples, but people don't really ask kids those questions. And as a kid, you're kind of used to being ignored. And then something happens where you sort of grow into an adult. The transition is not that clear, but you never quite shed that complex, that psyche of being the the child in any relationship 
And so I think people have this sense that when they're reaching out, I'm going to call it shooting up because you use that word. People don't think that the person they're shooting up to is just like them. They think that they're different. They're like a parent figure. They're like a authority figure. And that creates a terrible feeling, which some people call as imposter, call imposter syndrome, where you don't feel like you have a seat at the table with that person. The truth is that everybody is struggling, everybody's learning, everybody's figuring it out. So if you think about people as friends and you think about a different setting where you're in the playground as a child and you're meeting other children or just meeting people like peers where they are, that changes everything. It changes how you talk to them. It changes your tone. It changes your beliefs about what you can share with them, right? And I think all of these things are integral to like making friends on the internet. I'm not saying that busy people will always reply if you're like hyper-confident. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you need to swing a lot before you hit. And the only way that you get comfortable swinging at the ball is by not feeling like an imposter and actually just recognizing, hey, I'm going to have to kiss a lot of frogs. I'm going to have to send 100 emails. I'm going to have to like write to 50 people and maybe two will reply. That's fine. Um, and then I've got something to say. But there's a lot of people that just don't swing, right? They just won't swing. And because they'll feel like it's futile or the first three that they send, they don't get response. So the best, I mean, I've probably said different things in the past to similar questions, but as you've asked it today, to summarize, I think, put the work in, like find stuff you're interested in, do interesting things um, and start to build, build that sen sense of like who you are and what you're trying to what you're able to offer and what you're trying to learn about. And then secondly, just go into these opportunities, like believing that you've got a good shot and send those emails. You never know. If you don't send them, like you never know. I think another interesting part of uh, yourself and your story is that you've been, uh, you know, geographically in different places and then professionally in quite different industries as well. When yeah. you've, when you think back to kind of the great people you've met at each step of the, uh, those journeys, are there things that they do, either networking-based or other things that you've picked up on that you think, wow, that's a, that's a good idea and, and that you've picked up on yourself? Um, that's a really good question. Certainly there are. Uh, I don't have a kind of mental catalog of them to hand, but what I'll just say a few things. I think in the digital era, people who command attention and who build huge distribution um, and huge online bodies of work, whether that's like 100,000 tweets or 1,000 podcast episodes or like companies or products, whatever it is, they've all been, by and large, even if they're perceived to be an overnight success, if you dig deeper, they've been working hard and consistently for a long time. So there's a lot of people like that. And any of them in any domain that you look at, um, they will have years behind them of hard and consistent work. So that's one thing. I think there's no real substitute for that. The second thing I would say is, as I've seen people in very senior roles, and I've worked, you know, each of the 20 projects I worked on as a consultant or more than 20, pretty much they were all sponsored by very, very senior, like top, in the top one, two or three tiers of a company, of global companies. And like the people that get to that um, level and really stand out, they're very good with other people. They're very people orientated. Um, even if they have a technical background, there comes a point where they're actually being paid not for their technical skill, but they're being paid for their judgment and their emotional intelligence and their relational abilities. 
So I think that's something that I try and bear in mind. It can be difficult if you're in the trenches and building and trying to do stuff, um, building media, building products, whatever it is. Uh, that you know to 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 remember that because there does come a point where you start to elevate out of the building in the trenches into more like people management and um, leveraging your impact in an organization through that. So I think that's the second thing is that they're very good with people. The third thing is that some of them have been very candid with me about their own struggles. Uh, I wrote to a mentor today, like an end of year note. And uh, the last time I spoke to him, you know, he told me I was going through a bit of a confusing time and I was feeling a bit down about it all. And the last, uh, he told me that he was going through something very similar. Like literally everything that I said, he was like, I'm going through exactly the same thing or I've just been through that same thing and I'm just coming out of it. And this is a guy that is like, smashed it out the park on every dimension of his professional life is unbelievable um what he has achieved um and you know that 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 for me that's like really reassuring because we all have inner voices we all have like challenges versions of ourselves that are holding us back and so on so that's yeah very unstructured answer i can't even remember exactly what i just said um but i think in that mix of things is is what i've was probably if I had to bear certain things in mind, it would be those things. Yeah, hard and consistent work, uh, trying to be like the best with other people that I can be, and you know, just remembering that everyone's trying to figure it out. That's a yeah. <laughs> I'm used to answering in threes. That's the kind of thing McKinsey teaches you. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to that. But just to quickly follow on on your last point, yeah. um, you mentioned that you sent an end of year note to your mentor. Would you mind just talking a little bit about how? Once you found a mentor or once you found someone who you think would be a good fit, yeah. how you make them into a mentor? Because it's it's not always clear. Is, is, you know, is it a case of you go up to them and you say directly, will you be my mentor? <laughs> or is it a case of a particular type of communication at a regular cadence? Like what, how do you make someone into your mentor? It's a good question. So um, I, I think with this guy um, and with others, I've actually just asked them. I've said, look, I'm looking for like mentorship and advice or guidance i'm looking for some challenge um, and i try and be quite specific about my questions that i'm looking for guidance or advice on or be self-reflective and say this is a thing i struggle with i struggle with self-deprecation i struggle with imposter syndrome i struggle with um you know feeling inadequate in some way right whatever it is that we all struggle with and then i just say like do you mind like uh you know I, having a chat i really need some mentorship and it's not formal, but then what I do is um, I set like uh, reminders in the future. I just use Notion, so I keep notes, and then I'll just pop like a date reminder in one month, three months, six months down the line. And when that notification comes up, I'll write to that person. I'll say, "Hey, just you don't need to reply. This is what's going on in my life. This is how your advice really helped me, or this is how I've come on since we last spoke. You know, have a great Christmas, have a great New Year." So that's basically, it's a very loosely structured process. Um, I, I, receive, I also receive um, some inbound requests for mentorship. I think at the moment I'm probably a bit spread thin, but what I do like to try to uh, do is like, instead of having lots of calls and feeling swamped, I actually now say to people, just send me like a WhatsApp voice note or send me like a structured email, like what you're facing and so on. And then I, can, I know I can get back to them quite quickly and I can, you know, without, being you know being time poor i can still like for short periods of time give them uh some attention uh, so, sorry i can give them my full attention and really try and help and support them and understand what they're going through um imran the last thing i wanted to ask you about was 
any particular learnings or thoughts you had on decision making and these can be as micro and you know day-to-day or as macro and big picture as as you like on the big decisions in my life there have been a couple of things that have consistently helped the first is seeing them as if they're reversible recognizing that they're reversible Um, most decisions in life are two-way doors you can wind back after you've made the decision if things don't work out almost anything in the domain of careers is like that i think there are very few things that are one way in in a career even leaving specialty training leaving medicine blah 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 you can always go back unless you've done something terrible which is why you've been asked to leave (laughs) leave through the fire exit and don't show your face um no i'm sure that's not not many people in that category but i think that you know people who are like considering stuff one way to think about it is like explore and exploit so exploration is like just trying different things and then exploitation is a, is a terrible word but in the in the mental model what it means is if you find let's say you're tapping around yeah for uh, oil and you hit oil then you start drilling right so at some point you start exploiting what you found um and i think that model is important and it goes with this like one way door two way door thing because when you're exploring you actually need to explore and tap around a lot you need to make lots of changes you need to maybe um take a very winding route to find something that's a fit but then when you're when you have found something that's a fit then you do have to like persist with it for some time and i think it's a judgment call to know like should i just keep persisting with this thing or should i start exploring again should i like change it up again um but i think you should be patient with that in the sense that if patient with the exploration i think people should be willing to try more things because especially if you think about like careers now as a kind of 40 to 50 year journey it's really important um to you know not have those 50 years defined by some decision you made as a 15 year old about your a levels and then your university course and so on <laughs> uh, i think that's kind of illogical and a lot of people get trapped in that Uh, the second thing i would say is that there's like a bunch of like small decisions just in my day-to-day life i do try and um, use like technology and products and stuff to remove the fatigue of certain decisions so just uh, using things like booking links um using things like um using notion in the way that i described uh, i'm sure there's a lot more i could do i also have a bunch of you know digital habits that could be improved like i was off whatsapp for a couple of years and it was amazing i'm back on whatsapp now and i just find I'm spending a lot of time on it, just communicating with people. That's that's what I would say. I would say the real risks in making big decisions are often not as big. Most people discount the upside. Most people think about the downside. They don't actually think and quantify the upside potential. Um, they don't realize that things are easily reversible, so they never try. Um, and then there's just so much potential for for people to like remove friction from their day to day lives with with products and stuff. Um, but that maybe that's a bit more obvious. Do you have any books that you've read over your career that you found particularly um, influential or helpful? So definitely, yes. I'm drawing, I'm like struggling to remember just now, but let me give you a few. First of all, I think Nassim Taleb's books, it's a bit of a cliche, but um, I find them very good. I've really enjoyed Nassim Taleb's books, uh, particularly Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game. I'm looking at a bookshelf over there. That's where I'm looking. Um, Like really good for understanding incentives, understanding risk, and just things that like are just really ever present in uh, in life. 
and not visible, apparently visible to us. There's a book by Alain de Botton, a philosopher called The School of Life. That is an excellent book on emotional intelligence and emotional health. There's a great book on career development called Range by David Epstein. And Range talks about the balance uh, and the reasons, the balance between going like generalist versus specialist and David Epstein's view that being a generalist, especially in the modern era, is sort of a uniquely um, powerful path to take. So he took, he's, he's in advocacy of generalism. I read some really good books about class, race, inequality. I'll just rattle them off very quickly because I found them very powerful and very good books. One is called Natives by Akala, the musician. It's a great book. Um, there's another one called Roots by Alex Haley. Alex Haley was uh, authored the uh, Malcolm X biography that many people have read. That's one of the most powerful uh, books on um, history and the history of slavery. I thought Austin Cleon's book, Show Your Work, um, I came across it from the Ali Abdal podcast, but actually it's a very good book and it's really encouraged me to create more content and to share it online. Being one of those people who has made the transition, you know, out of, out of medicine and moved to the other side, I think it's easy sometimes to think that the grass is always greener. And I was wondering if you had any, you know, re real insight into both the, you know, both the good sides and the bad sides of, of the transition you've made. I feel one thing, just a caveat, um, for me, the transition has been uh, by and large, very positive. So I'm giving this recollection from that point of view, right? So there certainly will be people who, who have a rocky transition. Um, the first place they land is not quite the right place for them. Uh, they may have doubts, et cetera. That kind of thing happens. My experience on this was I haven't often looked back. Are there certain parts of being a doctor that I miss? Like, I think there's something about the professional community and camaraderie in medicine, being around other healthcare workers, not just doctors, but nurses and everyone else in the hospital. That's quite special. And I can really see that during COVID, that's been a great source of strength for many people in healthcare. And that's something that people do, and I think ought to, for good reasons, envy in a sense. Like, it's a great thing to have. Um, I don't mean envy in a negative sense here. I mean, people should aspire. It's good for people to aspire to that kind of thing because it's a source of support. So I have looked back on it from time to time, but I have personally really, on the whole, although there have been some very challenging experiences, which I think actually far more challenging in some ways than medicine, less challenging in other ways, mainly the sense of uncertainty about where you're going in life. So when you walk off the beaten path and you're trying to, patch together something that's doesn't that doesn't have such clear role models you can feel lost you can feel uncertain about the future you can wonder where your income is going to come from you can wonder how people will perceive your career like what are your actual skills so i have no credentials beyond my public health degree after my medical school and i come from a paradigm where credentials are like your your reason to have a seat at the table so now I think like, you know, if I'm working with somebody in a business setting or any other setting, create creator setting, what are my credentials? Actually, what it comes down to, which is much more scary in a way, is the stuff that is like proof of your work, your podcasts, your case, your audience, 
and yeah, and your reach, right? So the actual the actual work and what you're doing in the world and your your ability to sort of command people's attention, um, and that's a very scary place to be because like you know it's um it's much more uncertain how to make it out in in this world of entrepreneurship, content creation, solopreneurship, angel investing, startup contracting, startup founding. It's very amorphous. So I think one thing I've really worked on the last six months is reminding myself why I left medicine. And instead of entertaining the doubt that can creep into your mind from time to time, instead I try and double down on that intention. So the intention was to help people through content, to build companies that have a positive impact in the world, to back companies that, that do good things, et cetera. So I need to double down on that. When I feel doubt, I double down. I kind of recommit. Uh, I look for more ways to get deeper and deeper into that because I recognize that I'm still learning, I'm still developing. On the whole, there's a few kind of simple, like high level points I'll just make here. For anyone who's a medical doctor or clinically trained, a nurse, what have you, who's thinking about leaving healthcare, clinical practice, there are tremendous opportunities out there. Um, I'll speak about doctors, but they apply to other professions. Healthcare was at the center of the world's attention for the last 18 to 20 months. And our emergence from this pandemic is because of innovation in healthcare, in biotech, life sciences, et cetera. There's so much work to do beyond working as a clinician in those industries, products, services, existing ones that are there today, companies that are hiring clinicians or people that can do stuff in the, digi in the digital realm, but have a clinical perspective. But there's also so much more that needs to be created. So much more. There are so many more companies that need to be founded. There's so many more problems that need to be solved. So I think that there are tremendous opportunities. It may take a while. The best fullback that you can have in any of this are your hard skills. The reason why as a doctor you have job security is because you actually have skills and you have like credentials and skills and ability to do something. You can be dropped in a hospital and you can be useful. Now, if you can say that about your digital skills, then the same, you should have the same job security, if not more, because you can work from anywhere. You can work for companies that not just in the UK, but anywhere in the world. You can work across sectors. Um, and what I mean by that are the kinds of digital skills that you can imagine, anything from copywriting to design to software development to anything else. So if you can learn those things as well, which is hard, if you can learn some of those things, it'll put you in an even stronger position. So I think that there's a huge amount of opportunity. I would advise people to learn useful skills that are needed in the world of work. You can see what people are hiring for. You can, you can research what skills are on the rise in their demand. Learn some of those skills. It's hard, but it can be done. And you will have a very bright future. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.